tonight I want to talk to you on the subject of spiritual warfare. Um, to me, this is a major issue, and I, I come at it from a number of angles, but let me start at the beginning for me personally. I grew up as a nice sort of kid, the son of a Baptist pastor, you know? My world was not very complicated. I was in church uh, constantly growing up. I, I never kind of lived the wild life. I was sort of uh, sheltered very well in a, in a pastor's home. My father was a pastor. My grandfather uh, was a pastor. Uh, my father still is preaching. My great-grandfather was a pastor in Canada. My great-great-grandfather was a pastor in Scotland. So, you know, I've been around pastors all my life and churches and Sunday schools and on and on, you know. So... So I was very sheltered guy, you know, and so I eventually graduated from seminary and I, I went out to Grace Community Church. Uh, the reason I went there was they'd had two pastors in a row that died of a heart attack and somebody said, get a young one. You know, we don't want to support another widow. We don't care if he's any good. Just make sure he's going to be here for a while. So I went to Grace Church and um, some wish I had passed away, but I'm sticking it out, you know. But I went to Grace Church, and uh, my dad said to me, you know, you're going to find it's going to be difficult in the ministry. You're going to have trials and tribulation and trouble, and Satan's going to come against you, and you're going to find yourself in a spiritual battle. And I remember after about a year, I said to him one time, I said, you know, Dad, when is this deal supposed to start, this battle thing? I said, this is unbelievable. God is blessing. The church is growing like crazy. People love the Word. They love my wife. They love my kids. They, they pay me to preach. The, it's, it's incredible what God is doing in our church. And I, I, I'm waiting to see where the battle starts. He said, just wait. Well, it wasn't too many weeks after that conversation. And I went out after Sunday night service. I had been preaching, and I went over to somebody's house to eat pie or something, and and I was uh, talking to these people, and a phone call came. It was from one of the other guys that was on the staff that I'd been discipling, Jerry Mitchell, who's now the pastor of a really great church up in the Seattle area. And Jerry said, John, you've got to get down here fast. And I said, why? He said, man, I've got a problem. I've got a major problem. I said, where are you? He said, I'm in my office. I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm crawling out from under my desk. What? Jerry was a boxer in the Navy. He's a tough guy. So what are you doing crawling out from under your desk? He said, there's a demon-possessed girl in this room, and she pushed the desk on me. He says, you got to get down here. I said, are you sure you can't handle this one yourself? <laughs> he said, I'm telling you, get down here. I don't know what to do with her. So I get in my car. I had no clue, you know. And I went down there, and I walked in the door. I'll never forget this. I walked in the door of his office, and this girl was sitting there, with this glassy, spaced-out stare. And she saw me. She looked straight at me with this glassy stare. And I knew the girl. And in a voice that wasn't her own, she says, Not him. Not him. Get him out of here. Get him out of here. My first reaction was, I'm going. I don't need this. What is this? Right? I'm in over my head. And Jerry is in a, in a state of, you know, real panic. And then my second reaction was, she knows who I am. The demons know who I am. And better than that, they know whose side I'm on. They don't want me in here. I began to feel apostolic. <laughs> well, we didn't, know how to, we didn't know how to deal with this girl. And so we started trying to cast demons out. We sent them everywhere. Everywhere we could think was... Everywhere we could think was hot. Hades, Tucson, you know, any place. We were telling the demons to go, and then another one would pop up with his voice, and we'd send that demon somewhere, and none of them went any place. 
And I realized I don't have any power over these beings. I said in the name of Jesus Christ and God the Father and the Holy Spirit, I command you to come out. And they would say, no. It's exactly what they said. No would come out of her mouth. And I said to Jerry, I don't know what to do with this. So we began to pray. She began to attack me. She kicked my shins till they, bl- till they bled. I couldn't stop her until finally we slammed her against the wall. She had that kind of supernatural strength. And she fell in the chair, and I said, we've got to pray. And it was like the light dawned, and, and I realized that because there was sin in her life, she'd given place to Satan and his hosts. And I said, you're going to have to confess your sin and bow your knee to Jesus Christ. And we got through to her in the midst of this, all these demons, and she began to confess her sin, and she poured out a pile of sin like the drippings of a broken sewer. And she bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and embraced him and was as clean as the driven snow, as white as snow and as pure as wool. And we went out of there realizing this is war. We are in a spiritual war. And we need to know how to fight the spiritual war. We can't be naive about it. That was my introduction to this whole issue of spiritual warfare. Since that time, I've naturally refined my understanding of what the Bible says about it. And I think today there's so much confusion. I want to see if I can help you to comprehend this matter of spiritual warfare and where we fit. I mean, there's a good case in the church right now of what I call diabolophobia. An unhealthy, unnecessary, unbiblical, unspiritual fear of Satan. And when the Bible says, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, that ought to settle the issue. But we need to understand this. I picked up an article not long ago. I've got a lot of them that come across my desk about spiritual warfare seminars. Do you ever read about those and people coming into town telling you the formulas and writing books telling you the formulas about how to deal with them and, and people reading Frank Peretti's books and, and people going to Larry Lee's seminars and wearing combat suits and, and going out to stomp demons and doing all this kind of stuff. And I picked up this article and it, it was in the L.A. Times. It said, under the militant banner of spiritual warfare, a growing number of evangelical and charismatic Christian leaders are preparing broad assaults on what they call the cosmic powers of darkness. Fascinated with the notion that Satan commands a hierarchy of territorial demons, some mission agencies and big church pastors are devising strategies for breaking the strongholds of those evil spirits alleged to be controlling cities and countries. Some proponents in the fledgling movement already claim focused prayer meetings ended the curse of the Bermuda Triangle led to the 1985 downfall of guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and produced a two-week drop in crime and freeway traffic in Los Angeles. This is not a storyline for a second sequel to Ghostbusters, but the developing scenario does have a fictional influence. Interest in spiritual warfare has been heightened by two novels which have become bestsellers in Christian bookstores by Frank Peretti. Fuller Seminary professor C. Peter Wagner, who has written extensively on the subject, led a so-called summit meeting on cosmic-level spiritual warfare earlier this month in Pasadena. Two dozen men and women took part, including a Texas couple who had the group called the Generals of Intercession and an Oregon man who conducts spiritual warfare boot camps. In the opening remarks, Wagner said, listen to this, the Holy Spirit is saying something to churches. Through the books by Peretti, even though they're fiction, people are reading these books that would never read our books. If you do not know what you are doing, says Wagner, and few have the necessary expertise, Satan will eat you for breakfast. 
Is that true? Satan will eat you for breakfast. Are we victims? Should we live in absolute fear of Satan consuming us? I was at a pastor's conference on the East Coast. There were about 6,000 people there. A very prominent pastor stood up in the pulpit just before I was to preach, and he said, let's pray. And this is how he started his prayer. Satan, and I almost fell over. Satan? I, I don't pray to him. Do you? Satan, we bind you. We do not allow you to, and, and you've heard it. And he went on and on and on like that. I'm talking, thinking to myself, he's talking to the devil. I've never spoken a word to the devil in my life, and I don't intend to. I have nothing to say to him. But I'm amazed at the number of people who have been sucked into confusion about this spiritual warfare stuff. And it, it does involve a, a, an unhealthy fascination with an unbiblical perspective that needs to be dealt with. I want us to get a grip on this whole issue of Satan's work and how we are to deal with it. First of all, I want to affirm to you something that is cardinal in the New Testament, and I've tried to articulate it in the book that I've written called Our Sufficiency in Christ. And that is that in Jesus Christ we possess everything to defeat the enemy. There isn't any question about that. There aren't any secret formulas. This isn't a big game of spiritual dungeons and dragons where you've got to have the right ploys and the right players to pull off victory. There aren't any mystical methods for confronting evil forces. There aren't any little formulas. There, you can't be running around binding the devil and have... Do you really believe it will have any effect? I mean, if, if you say, Satan, I bind you, he may not even hear you. He is fast, but not omnipresent. He might be in India, and he doesn't even know you're talking about him. And if he did hear you, do you think he'd run off in a corner and say, oh, I'm bound? And if you can bind him at all, then would you please bind him for good? If you can do that, just do it for good, will you? That'll make it a lot simpler. If I read my Bible right, there's only one person in the universe who can bind Satan, and he's not going to do that until he does it for the thousand-year kingdom. Until then, he will go around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And all the little formulas thrown at Satan, thrown at demons to bind them, must they must laugh at that. We don't have the authority to do that. And if we did, then we ought to do it permanently, and we could bring the kingdom immediately. And there would have to be a new book written to, to explain why the book of Revelation didn't pan out the way it did. Now... Aside, I'm just trying to introduce the theme. Aside from comprehending some of the confusion about Satan, we need to affirm the person of Christ. Look in your Bible at Colossians chapter 2, and I, and I want to just give you a sort of a foundation and then launch into the spiritual warfare issue. But I do want to give you a foundation. In Colossians chapter 2, it's very important for you to know 
the sufficiency of Christ that is articulated here as a foundation. Chapter 2 and verse 2. The last word in verse 2 of Colossians 2 is Christ. Christ. He is God's mystery revealed. Christ. Then verse 3 says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Everything you need about wisdom, everything you need about knowledge is in Christ. Then down in verse 9, In Him all the fullness of deity or the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. And then verse 10, And in Him you have been made what? Complete. Now follow this. And He is the head over all what? What does that refer to? Demons. Principalities and powers. You're complete in Him. In Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Him is all the fullness of deity. And He has power over all of that. And where does He live? In you. Therein lies your sufficiency. That's why Peter says in Second Peter 1, His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him. You are complete in Christ. You are armed fully in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, In Him we have wisdom, righteousness, redemption, and sanctification. Ephesians 1.3 says, In Him we are blessed with all what? Spiritual blessings in the heavenlies or the spiritual sphere. Through Him, Ephesians 3.20 says, we can do exceeding abundantly above all we can ask or even imagine. We're sufficient. Colossians chapter 2, that same chapter, look at verse 15. When Christ died on the cross, verse 14 talks about Him being nailed to the cross. Verse 15, the proper translation goes like this. On the cross, He disarmed the principalities, and the powers. Okay? So in Christ, we have full resources for spiritual triumph. There aren't anything, anything's running around loose that you don't know that you have to know in order to, to be victorious. When that man said, if you don't go to the seminar and learn these things, Satan will have you for breakfast, he was depreciating the sufficiency of Christ. That's significant. Now, we have fully been given the resources for spiritual victory in Christ. Having said that, let's talk about the basic issues of spiritual warfare. And I'm going to give you an overview, and the place to go is Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. We're going to study that chapter, and I think it will all kind of unfold for you. We're going to talk about spiritual warfare. First of all, the participants. Who is involved in this deal? Who is involved in spiritual warfare? Chapter 12 of Revelation unfolds that. Look at verse 3. John writing says, Another sign, there was a sign earlier in verse 1 of a woman... And a child, that's Israel giving birth, as it were, to the Messiah. Another sign appears in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon 
with seven heads, ten horns, on his head seven diadems. That's Satan. In this great 12th chapter of Revelation, you have a picture of spiritual warfare. The first participant here in verse 3 is Satan. He is engaged in spiritual warfare. Now listen carefully. His primary enemy, his primary antagonist is not you. Who is it? It's Jesus Christ. Since the very start, he has tried to destroy Christ. He tried to do it a number of ways in the Old Testament, including polluting the Jewish line through intermarriage with pagans, which is what Balaam was leading them to do. So there never would be a pure strain, including a wicked, wretched king by the name of Jeconiah who had to be cursed and the whole line had to bypass him. And how was God going to produce a Messiah around that problem? And he did it with a virgin birth so that when Jesus, born of Joseph, had Joseph's right to reign, he didn't have Joseph's blood, which was cursed in Jeconiah. Satan came along in a myriad of ways and tried to destroy Christ, tried to destroy the line of the Messiah. And then when he was born, what did he do? He tried to get Herod to kill Christ along with all the other children under two years of age, male children. Always he's after Christ. Took him to a mountain, didn't he? Tried to get him to bow down and serve him in the temptation. And then he tried to kill him, put him on a cross and keep him there. And then when they put him in a tomb, he tried to seal a tomb and keep him there. His, his protagonist is Christ. So spiritual warfare on the highest level is, is Satan battling primarily against Christ who, who works out the redemptive purposes of the eternal God. Which purpose does Satan wants to thwart? So the highest level of spiritual warfare is a battle between God and Christ. And it involves people. It involved Job when Satan came to God and said, I want Job. That same kind of mentality is going on. God endeavoring to destroy the redemptive plan of God. Satan endeavoring to destroy the redemptive plan of God. Second, look at verse 4. When Satan fell, when Satan fell, his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. This refers to the demons, the angels that fell. One-third of the holy angels fell. So we know that holy angels outnumber demons two to one, right? A little mathematics. Two-thirds are left, one-third's gone. That's the second level of warfare. And you've got holy angels two to one fighting with fallen angels who are demons. Now let me give you a little diagram. See if you can follow this in your mind. And you'll understand the theology of angels. Draw a line. You ever diagram a sentence? Remember you did diagram a sentence, put a, a word and then another line down and then another line down. Okay, on this line, put angels. Just put a little line. You can do it in your mind or on your paper. Angels. Two kinds. Make two little lines. Two kinds. Up, holy. Down, fallen. Right? Two kinds of angels. Holy angels, fallen angels. On the line where you wrote fallen, split it into two lines. And there's two different kinds of fallen angels. Loose and bound. What do you mean bound? I thought we couldn't bind them. We couldn't bind them. We didn't bind them. God bound them. They're in everlasting chains, right? Peter says that and so does Jude. So there are angels, two kinds, holy and fallen. 
fallen angels, two kinds, loose and bound. The loose ones are what the Bible calls demons. The bound, there are two kinds. You following? Two kinds of bound demons. Permanently bound. Jude, Peter, bound in everlasting chains. The other kind are temporarily bound. Remember reading Revelation chapter 9 when hell belches out demons in the time of the tribulation? There are some temporarily bound demons that are going to get belched out on the earth during the period of the tribulation. So angels, two kinds, fallen, uh, holy and fallen, two kinds of fallen, the, the loose and the bound, two kinds of bound, eternally bound, temporarily bound. Now you understand angelology. The loose, the loose fallen angels are what we know as demons. And they fell when Satan went. And one-third of the angels went. And so they're engaged in war. Now listen to me. Satan is warring against Christ on the very threshold of the throne of God. He has access to heaven when God gives it to him. And these these uh, holy angels and demons are warring all the time. You can't see it because it's in another dimension. Do you remember when Daniel prayed in Daniel 9 and he said, God, please act, God, please act. And God said, I will act. And you remember God sent an angel to answer his prayer and a demon stopped that angel. And God had to send Michael, who is super angel. He is. And Michael went down and gave some kind of a divine karate chop to that demon and sent that other angel on his job. This is a real warfare. Comes down one more level. Further down the chapter, we find even people are involved. Verse 17. The dragon was enraged with a woman. Who's that? Israel. And went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Listen, Satan has been after Israel to destroy Israel. He hasn't succeeded, has he? And Satan has been after the church to destroy the church. And he hasn't done that. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I want to tell you something. Listen to me very carefully. Your saving faith is not fragile. Do you understand that? It is indestructible. Persecution, satanic attack, demonic attack will destroy false faith. It will strengthen true faith. Why? Because it drives you to God. You say, how can it strengthen true faith? Because true faith is indestructible. And so you have the participants, Satan fighting Christ, demons fighting the holy angels in a cosmic war that we don't even know much about. That's a whole other study. And then redeemed people against whom Satan comes. Now, let's bring it down. We've talked about the participants. Let's talk about the targets, the targets. First, this war is, get, is directed at Christ. It's directed at Christ. And I already noted that. Go back to verse 1. Revelation 12, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. That's symbolic of Israel and the 12 tribes. 
Verse 2, she was with child and she cried out being in labor and pain to give birth. And the child is the Messiah who was born of the nation Israel. Verse 5, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's talking about the ascension of Jesus Christ after his perfect work and his death and his resurrection. Satan is after the woman and Satan is after the male child. Satan even had an agent in, among the disciples. Who was it? Judas. They, the goal of Satan, the goal of demons, is to destroy the work of Christ. Secondly, we already noted the target is Israel. Verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness, that's the nation Israel, where she had a place prepared by God so that there she might be nourished for 1,260 days. That's half the seven-year tribulation. In the future, during the seven-year tribulation period, Israel's going to flee into the wilderness. God's going to hide her because Satan and his demons are going to try to destroy the nation Israel again. Then if they can do that, obviously there's no kingdom. And if there's no kingdom, then the Word of God doesn't come true. And if the Word of God doesn't come true, God's not God. So, attack against Christ, attack against Israel. And you can look down through history and you can see how Israel has been attacked. Satan has sometimes used human beings like Antiochus Epiphanes, like Haman, who tried to wipe out the Jewish people, only God used Esther to save them, like Hitler, who murdered six million Jews, like Saddam Hussein, who killed more Jews than Hitler. The next target is holy angels. Verse 7, there was war in heaven. Michael, who I told you is super angel, and his angels waging war with Satan, and, the, and Satan and his angels waging war, and they were not strong enough. Isn't that good? They're not strong enough to defeat Michael and holy angels. So there's no place found for them in heaven, and they're thrown out. This, again, during the tribulation, they're going to be thrown down to the earth. But just this just forms for you the battle lines. And then there are the believers, whom we mentioned at the end of the chapter in verse 17. So that's the spiritual warfare as it lays out. This, this onslaught is incessant, absolutely incessant. But let's talk about the believer's aspect of it. Go down to verse 10. I had a, a lo, uh, heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. Now I want you to stop there for a minute. One of the strategies that Satan has against us is to go to God and tell God all the time how wretched we are. That's what he does. He does it all the time. He says that. He does it night and day, unendingly. Satan is up there telling God how wretched we are how rotten we are, how wicked we are, how undeserving we are, how sinful we are. That's one way that he assaults us. He assaults us at the throne of God to endeavor to convince God that we are not worthy of his redeeming grace. Then in the next verse, verse 11, they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they didn't love their life even to death. Here's a second way he attacks. He not only attacks believers in heaven, but he attacks believers where else? On earth. Even to the degree of martyrdom. Even to the degree of killing them. And we could go through a number of other scriptures and add some more things. He attacks us through the world system, doesn't he? Doesn't he want to get us to buy into the world system and fall victim to temptation? 
He attacks us through the flesh. He attacks our minds. Acts 5, Peter looks at Ananias and Sapphira and says, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Why did you allow Satan to plant thoughts in your mind to lie to God's Holy Spirit? Satan tries to destroy you on the highest level at the very throne of God. He tries to destroy you, as it were, on the lowest level of taking your life in this world. He tries to assault your flesh. He tries to make the world attractive to you. He tries to put thoughts in your mind. He is aggressively coming against believers. He is the accuser. In Zechariah's vision, Zechariah 3, we'll look at that in a minute, Satan is before the Lord trying to accuse Joshua, the high priest, just like in Job. He, any way possible, from the highest level, the throne of God, down to the lowest level, the earth, he is after you and me. Not because he cares about us. You understand that? But because he wants to thwart the redemptive purpose of God manifest in Christ because he is proud and jealous and because, of course, he knows his destiny is settled. How do we fight back? That's the key question. How do we deal with this? Do we bind Satan? Do we bind demons? Do we chase them around? Is everything in our life a demon problem? I read a book that talked about the demon of post-nasal drip. <laughs> is everything a demon? How do we deal with them? Do we, do we send them away? Do we cast them out? How do we fight back? Listen very carefully, because I think I'm going to tell you some things you've probably never thought of. First of all, when Satan comes against you and me, and when demons come against you and against me, listen carefully, it could be that they are doing that because God wants them to do that. Did you hear that? It could be that God wants them to do that. Do you know that Satan is at all times subject to God and can never do anything that isn't within the permission of God? And all the demons are equally subject to God and couldn't do anything unless God allowed them to do it. And there are times when God purposely sets Satan and demons on a course to accomplish his own will. Now, that's true two ways, negative and positive. Let's talk negatively for a minute. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 16. And just briefly, because we don't have the time to really look at all the details of this, but in 1 Samuel 16, verse 12, there's a description of David, every girl's dream. Manly, tanned, beautiful eyes, handsome appearance, all that, and he could play a harp. And the Lord said, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, this is he. And Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel arose and went to Ramah. Now look at verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit. What's the next phrase? From who? from the Lord, terrorized him. Verse 15, Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from the Lord is terrorizing you. 
from the Lord. After David was selected king, Saul was jealous, he was bitter, he was angry, and that opened him up to a demon. God allowed that demon access to his wicked heart. You know what happened to that man? He became more wicked. He began to make rash judgments, bad decisions. He killed his own son for eating honey. He despised Samuel's authority. He became proud. He became dictatorial. He crossed the line into the priestly office. Insanity followed. And then Saul became a mass murderer. And then he got involved with a medium in the occult. And then he finally committed suicide. Once the proud, handsome king, God turned him over to a demon. He was stripped naked. He was humiliated. He massacred the priests. And finally, he killed himself. All in the plan of God. There are times when God releases a demon to do his judgment work. There's only one person in the universe who has a right to command a demon. Who is it? God. He knows His purposes. Precisely. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 to look at a New Testament illustration. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, It's actually reported that there is immorality, sexual sin among you. And the kind of immorality that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, someone has his father's wife, that's incest. It may have been a stepmother, but it may, may have been his actual mother. Hard to know. Instead of being literally despondent and repentant about this, the church in Corinth had become arrogant. They hadn't mourned, verse 2 says. This is so serious. Verse 5, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. I'm turning him over to Satan, and Satan can destroy his flesh. You know what that might mean? Venereal disease. That's probably what he had in mind. You know when it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that when you sin sexually, you sin against your body? In ancient cultures, whole civilizations were wiped out by venereal disease. AIDS isn't anything new in God's economy. You can't live any way you want and skip around somehow the retribution of a holy God. That person's flesh is going to be destroyed. Graciously, their spirit will be saved. But I'm turning them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That happens. I had a guy step into the baptismal water at our church not long ago, and he said, I have AIDS, and I'm dying. And he said, I deserve it. He said, I was living the high and mighty homosexual lifestyle. He said, I was involved in the gay parades. I was involved in the whole thing for 20 years. He says, now I'm dying. My flesh is being destroyed. But like this guy, 
in the midst of it, his soul was saved. There are times when God releases Satan to accomplish a level of destruction that ultimately brings a person to Christ. Don't second-guess the operation of Satan. Don't imagine that you can run around telling Satan what to do. You don't know what God wants from him. And even if you could control him, who in the world do you think you are to have the omniscience to assume that you could control him the way God wants him controlled? Sometimes it's for negative reasons. Sometimes positive. Let's go back to Job. Sometimes God has positive reasons. Job 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. Did you hear that? Let me see that again. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. That is a good man. Right? That's a good guy. If, if that kind of stuff happened to me and I was that kind of a guy, I would write a book titled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Right? This is a good guy. This guy has got it all. Seven sons and three daughters. 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, very many servants. The man was the greatest of all the men of the East. This is a great man. This is a godly man. And he's always offering sacrifices. In verse 5, he says to God, perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their heart. And he's giving up bird offerings. This is a godly man. Verse 6, Satan comes to God. The Lord says to Satan, where'd you come from? Satan says, I've been roaming around on the earth. You know what he's doing? Roaming around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may. And he's got one, Job. Wants to have him for breakfast. So the Lord said to Satan, well, all right, you want somebody for breakfast? How about Job? Nobody like him on the earth. Blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And Satan answers the Lord, does Job fear God for nothing? Come on, God. The reason he's that way is look at all the stuff you gave him. I mean, he's loaded. He's the living example of the health, wealth, prosperity gospel. Look at him. Of course he's going to worship you. Look at the stuff he's got. You put a hedge around him and his house and all that stuff. You bless the work of his hands and his possessions have increased. I'll tell you what, you put your hand forth and touch all that he has and he'll curse you to the face. What did I tell you a little while ago about true faith? True saving faith is not fragile. It is what? Indestructible. God says, all right. Okay, verse 12. All that he has is in your power. Just don't kill him. You can't kill him, but you can do anything else. And you know the story. Unbelievable. All his family gets killed except his wife. And there were many days when he wished that she'd been the one who got killed and everybody else was spared. <laughs> Because she kept saying stupid things like, curse God and die. <laughs> he lost everything. And then he got diseases and all that stuff. It's, he's wiped out in the rest of the chapter. Totally wiped out. Decimated. Sick. His whole family's dead. He's lost everything. And he says, at the end of the chapter, verse 21, Naked I came from my mother's womb. I'm going back naked. I came in with nothing. I'm going out with nothing. The Lord gave. The Lord has taken away. 
Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not write a book entitled, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? He didn't shake his fist at God. He didn't question God. His true faith was not fragile. It is indestructible. Listen, this kind of persecution will destroy false faith. You remember the sower sowed the seed in the ground that was rocky and the thing sprung up for a little while and when tribulation came, it died. False faith dies under trouble. True faith flourishes. It's indestructible. What's going to separate us from it? Nothing. Romans 8. God's prayer. Say, what was God doing? Job's down here. He's saying, why is this happening? Why is this happening? Well, what's going on here? And then he gets a bunch of dumb friends who come and they give him all wrong answers. These are the original Christian counselors. They give him all the wrong answers. Well, Job, you've got sin in your life. Uh, uh, Job, you've... And they give him, you know, chapter after chapter after chapter of ridiculous opinions. And he goes and they give him that, and then he goes home and his wife says, curse God and die. You know, and it's just kind of, it's kind of a crushing thing. You know what the whole story was? Now, follow this thought. You say, why did God let this happen? I'll tell you why. There's this thing going between God and Satan. And God wanted Satan to know that true saving faith is indestructible. That's the whole point. Have at him, Satan. And he did. And when it was all over, Job says in chapter 42, I heard of you with the hearing of my ears. Now my eye sees you. God, you've never been so clear, so plain to me as through this adversity. And I repent in dust and ashes. See, his faith stood the test because true faith always stands the test. And God was saying to Satan, saving faith is indestructible. You will never conquer my kingdom. I will build my church and what? The gates of hell will not what? Prevail against it. And that was, a, that was an issue between God and Satan. And Job was just down here having it happen to him and couldn't figure out why. So God sometimes releases Satan for those reasons. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's take a New Testament illustration. Well, first we'll stop on the way. Go to Luke 22. Luke 22. We get into the New Testament. Who are the most prominent two people in the New Testament apart from Christ? Peter and Paul, right? So who do you think Satan wants? Peter and Paul. So, I love this, Luke 22. Peter, my favorite disciple, the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. <laughs> Luke 22:31. Listen to this, Luke 22:31. Simon, Simon. I love that. Jesus always called him by his old name when he was acting like his old self. <laughs> Simon, Simon. Listen to this. Behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Is that something? You want to know something? Satan couldn't lay a finger on Peter without what? Permission. Satan isn't going to have you for breakfast. He can't destroy your faith. He can't thwart the eternal purposes of God for those that were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world unto eternal glory. If He wants to mess with Peter, He has to get permission. 
And you might think the Lord would say, no, you're not having permission. Leave him alone. The Lord didn't say that. Ha! He didn't say that. He said, have at him. I'm going to make my point again. Satan did. And boy, Peter was a mess, wasn't he? He denied Christ, didn't he? But look at verse 32. Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but you're going to be all right. Why? I prayed for you. Is that amazing? Satan may come against you. Demons may come against you. Will they succeed? Why? Your high priest is what? Praying for you. So he says, well, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith won't what? Fail. And so when you've been converted, strengthen others. You know what he's saying to him? I want you to go through this because having gone through this and having your faith tested and having it strong and having it not fail, you're going to come out of this tremendous trauma and you're going to be able to help others. Right? In Job's case, God was making Job a better worshiper. In Peter's case, God was making Peter a better helper. God has his purposes. Hey, for all I know, God may send Satan after me. I'm not going to stand around under some kind of ridiculous uh, presumption and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. I bind you. If I could do that, I wouldn't. Because who knows what God purposes, God's purposes are. Okay, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. This is one of the great sections of Scripture. And now I told you that Satan wanted Peter. Now you'll see he wants Paul, naturally. Verse 7, 2 Corinthians 12, 7. He says, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. Now just stop at that point. Paul had a lot of revelations, didn't he? And I'm not talking about the books that were revealed to him like Romans and Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and so forth. I'm not talking about that. He's talking about apocalypses, unveilings of, of, the, of the resurrected and ascended Christ. Do you know that on four occasions, on four occasions, he had some kind of transcendent supernatural vision? Once he went to heaven, didn't he? Caught up into the third heaven. Three other occasions... Christ appeared to him. Do you understand that? The living, resurrected, exalted, ascended Christ came and met with Paul. And it wasn't that Jesus showed up at a meeting and Paul was in the audience. It was one-to-one. That could make you proud, right? I mean, let's say Silas and Timothy and Paul are having a discussion about what's the best strategy for evangelism. And Silas says, I think this, I think this. And Timothy says, no, no, I think this. And Paul says, guys, I got the plan. Well, it makes you think you're right. How many times has the ascended Christ appeared to you? <laughs> well, never. That's what I thought. We'll use my plan. I mean, you know, you just... That would just sort of pump you, you know, like you're one of a kind. By the way, after his ascension into heaven, he never appeared to anybody but Paul. Nobody. This is pretty amazing stuff. So, God had to balance it off a little bit. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from what? Exalting myself. There was given me. By whom? God. He got a gift from God. It wasn't a gift he solicited. He calls it a what? 
thorn in the flesh. Now, you you think of thorn, you think of this little thing. No, the word for thorn here is a stake, a long piece of wood filed to a point, a large stake. That's what it means. He doesn't mean because I had so many revelations to keep me humble, the Lord just stuck my finger. No. There was given me a stake. Literally for my flesh. To literally ram through me to kill my otherwise proud flesh. And what was it? Verse 7. A messenger from whom? Satan. God allowed Satan to send his messenger into the life of Paul to tear up Paul, to humble Paul, to break his pride for holy purposes, right? And so what is that? Was, was it malaria? No. Was it eye disease? No. See the word messenger? It's the word in Greek, angelos. It appears 188 times in the New Testament. 187, if you take this one out, it always means a person. So what do you think it means here? person, either an angel or a human. So either God sent him a demon, a a satanic demon, just like in the case of Saul, or some demon-controlled person who was the proverbial pain in the neck. And I tend to think it was that, the ringleader of the Corinthian conspiracy against him. And he said, but this was a messenger from Satan who was sent by God to drive a stake through my proud flesh and to buffet me. The word means to hit me in the face with a fist, to knock my flesh out, to keep me from exalting myself. You say, why is that important? I'll tell you why it's important. Because verse 9, grace is, uh, rather, verse 9, power is perfected through what? Weakness. And God said, I want that man a powerful man. If he's going to be a powerful man, he has to be a humble man. If he's going to be a humble man, he's got to see himself failing. And if he's going to see himself failing, I've got to bring things into his life to destroy his confidence. Verse 8, he says, when I got my messenger of Satan, what, is he, what did he do? Did he cast the demon out? Did he bind it? No. He said, I went to the Lord and said, please remove this, Lord. Three times God said, my grace is sufficient for you and power is perfected in weakness and you're not weak enough yet to be powerful. Do you know that God may allow demons in your life to assault you, to destroy your pride? I can tell you people, as one who's been in the same place for 22 years, I went through a period of four years in my ministry when I was under assault. I... I can't describe it, and I won't even take the time, except to know that after 15 years of flourishing, growing ministry, you can tend to believe that you have some capabilities and skills that are your own and not God's, and you can become proud. And God brought into my life four years of absolute distress and pain and agony, and I was assaulted on all sides. And I really believe that was God saying, you are too proud to be powerful. Don't you make any assumptions about what God is doing with Satan and demons and run around half cock telling them what to do. First of all, you have nothing to fear from them, Right? Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Romans 16, Satan is under your feet. 
He is an already conquered foe. You are complete in Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And he has already conquered and triumphed over principalities and powers. And he lives in you. Your faith is indestructible. And if he puts it to the test, it is to make a point to Satan, make a point to demons, and make a point to you about the need for you to be humble so you can be powerful. God will take things into your life to to humble you. We thank him for that. My son Mark is getting married in about a month to a great Christian gal in our church, Erica. And uh, a couple of years ago, Mark was playing baseball at the Masters College. And Mark is a good athlete. And um, he was playing on our baseball team and began to have some severe headaches. And so my wife Patricia said, I'm going to take him to the doctor because these headaches are bad every day. So we took him to a headache specialist, and the guy put him through an MRI, magnetic resonance imagery thing, where they can look like a kind of a brain scan. And we got a call all of a sudden. I'm making an appointment for the neurosurgeon at Cedar sinai which is the most prominent medical hospital in the Los Angeles area, making a, an appointment for you to see a neurosurgeon. Well, you don't go to, from a headache doctor to a neurosurgeon without a little bit of, of curiosity. So I said, take him to a neurosurgeon. So I got Mark in the car and went down there. He's a you know, big guy, loves Christ, serves the Lord with his whole heart. and He's athletic and he just, my heart is aching. I don't know what's going on. I get down there. I walk in there with Mark and the doctor says, the nurse wants to do some tests. So you go out and fill out some papers. And Mark goes out. He says, the nurse isn't going to do any tests. I just wanted him out of the room when I tell you this could be fatal. He's got a tumor, the base of his brain. He goes on to describe this thing. And I'm, I'm just devastated. You know, this is my flesh and blood. My first thought is, you sure you got the right guy, Lord? You know, this, this guy is going to be used. And So I, he said, but I'm going to put him, before we do invasive things, we could drill a hole in his brain and go in, but we start messing around there. It's right near the pineal gland and right near the optic nerve. We could, we could do something that would be permanently damaging to him. So we want to do non-invasive techniques. So every day for nine days, you're going to go for special testing. He said, I want you to stay with him. I don't want you to tell him what we're doing, except we're doing some tests to find out what the situation is. So I decided that day that I was going to pray and fast until God gave me peace. So for eight days, I fasted and prayed. I didn't tell Mark. We just kept going for tests. He's not stupid. He knew something was up. Patricia knew. And during the first part of the, the, the eight days I was praying, Lord, save him, Lord, deli- deliver him. And, you know, you're just pleading for his life and all of that. And all of a sudden you get somewhere along the line and you start to flip over and say, Lord, he's yours, Lord, he's yours. If you want him, take him. And peace begins to come. And through these eight days of fasting, I prayed and fasted that God would have his will. And every day we went, every day. We were doing all kinds of these tests. Finally, the doctor says, I'm going to tell you in two days. We're going, to, we're going to have a committee meeting at USC Medical Center. We're going to talk about this whole thing. We're going to bring in all the pediatric specialists. We're going to look at all the tests. We're going to eye test them. We're going to make a decision. It was a Wednesday night, and I was supposed to hear the next morning. I'm sitting in my office, and I have perfect peace for the first time in eight days. Absolute peace. In fact, I was, I don't know that I had been closer to the Lord than I was then in many, many years, just because of the incessant, unceasing prayer and dependence. And I was sitting at my desk, and I, I said for the first time, I'm hungry. 
I'm hungry. And I hadn't thought about it for eight days. I'm really hungry. And I thought, how do I do this? I mean, you can't have a spiritual fast for eight days and go to Burger King. You know, I mean, just... Or McDonald's or eat pizza. I mean, there's got to be... You know, you're waiting for manna. You know, I mean, something that's spiritual. You know? I'm sitting there. And there's a knock on the door. And I'm, this, is a, this is before our evening service on Wednesday. So the doors are locked. I, you have to go through three sets of double doors to get to me. And there's a knock on my door, and I can't figure out how anybody got in there. And I said, come in. This lady walks in. had been in our church for many years. I said, Barbara, what are you doing here? She said, oh, pastor. She said, I'm sorry to bother you. This woman had never been in my office in the 15 years she'd been in the church. Never. She said, I just thought you might be hungry, and I made you a sandwich. I don't think I spoke. I think I went, this woman had never made me a cookie, never made me anything. This is ridiculous. She brought me a bologna and cheese sandwich. She put it on the desk and she left. I couldn't believe it. Absolutely couldn't believe it. And I sat back in my chair with tears in my eyes and I said, if God is so involved in my life as to deliver the sandwich when the fast is over, then Lord, please take me through more times like this so I can see how much you care. You see, it's those times in life, those troublesome times when God lets the onslaught come that you become the person you are to be because it drives you to His grace. That's what Paul was experiencing. He ran to God three times and found His grace sufficient. And what was the end result? Hey, Verse 9, I will gladly rejoice in my weaknesses. I am content, verse 10, with weakness, insult, distress, persecution, difficulty, because when all that comes, I'm weak, and when I'm weak, what? I'm strong. Whatever God, listen to this. God is so concerned about your spiritual maturity and your spiritual power that if he needs to, he'll use Satan and demons to accomplish it. Now, a closing question. How do we fight back? I mean, do we just hang around and say, well, I hope this works out, God? How do we fight back? First of all, don't talk to the devil and the demons. That's pointless. Let me show you some scriptures. Zechariah 3.2. You can't miss these now. These are going to pull it all together. Zechariah 3.2. This, this will blow your mind. Here we go. Joshua the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord, who is most likely Christ. And Satan is standing right in front of God's throne with Christ there accusing Joshua. Always the accuser of the brethren. Look at this. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. What? What's that? Tell you what it is. The second member of the Trinity, the Lord, didn't even say, I rebuke you. The second member of the Trinity said, what? The Lord rebuke you. Amazing. Amazing. Jude, chapter 8. What I'm saying there is, look, even the second member of the Trinity doesn't act 
on his own, apart from the first member of the Trinity in speaking to Satan. Jude, verse 9. Michael, super angel, champion angel, archangel. When he disputed with the devil. All right, here's Michael and Lucifer, his former friend, going at it. And what are they arguing about? Who gets the body of Moses? You say, why do they want to, why do they argue about that? I don't know. But apparently the devil wanted the body of Moses so he could put it on display for some purposes of his own. But would you note, Michael, when he was arguing about the body of Moses and debating with the devil, didn't dare pronounce against the devil a railing accusation, but said what? The Lord rebuke you. Now, if Michael's too smart to start commanding Satan, don't you think we should be pretty hesitant to do that kind of stuff? He said, the Lord take care of you. So the first thing you want to do is not get foolish about all that binding and loosing, which isn't even taught in the Scripture. Binding and loosing in the Scripture has, some, has to do with completely different issues with regard to sin and salvation. You don't talk to Satan. You don't talk to demons. You say, well, what about Christ and the apostles? That's Christ and the apostles. You're not Christ and you're not the apostles. They had a unique ministry. You say, well, do we have any weapons against them? 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to wrap this up. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Here we are. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not what? Carnal or fleshly. In other words, they're not in words and gimmicks and formulas. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're not fleshly. They are divinely powerful. And they can destroy Satan's fortresses. And they can destroy his speculations and his lofty things. And they can take everything captive to the obedience of Christ. We do have some spiritual weapons. And we've got to use them. You say, well, tell me, tell me, what are they? Okay, I'm going to tell you what they are. 1 Timothy 1.18. And I'm really condensing this. 1 Timothy 1.18. I command you, Timothy. 1 Timothy 1.18. My son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, fight the good fight. How do you fight, Timothy? How do you fight? Verse 19. Keeping the faith in the Greek. Keeping the faith and a good what? Conscience. Say, what's that? What's faith What's the faith and a good conscience? The faith is truth, right? This is, Jude said, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is the faith, isn't it? He's not talking about subjective faith, the objective faith. The first way you fight Satan is with the faith. That, in Ephesians 6, is called the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Secondly, a good conscience. What's that? Holiness. What do you mean a good conscience? A conscience that does not accuse you. If you sin, what will your conscience do? Accuse you. What are your weapons? The Word and righteousness. The sword of the Spirit and the breastplate of righteousness. Truth and holiness. Truth and holiness. Truth and holiness. How did Jesus fight Satan? Satan tempted him three times. Every time, what did he say? It is written. 
And John, he's in the upper room with his disciples. He says, Satan is coming. It is now his hour. And then this, but he has nothing on me. Isn't that great? The word, holiness. There was no place Satan could get a foothold in Christ. He had nothing on him. Truth and holiness. Truth and holiness. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But how do you resist him? How do you resist him? You resist him strong in the faith and holiness. Father, thank you for our time tonight. What a vital, vital thing it is to understand that you have won the victory for us over the enemy and that the only thing we need to fight are spiritual weapons, truth and holiness. If we don't know the truth, Satan will get us with his lies. If we have sin in our life, we'll give him an opening. So, Lord, make us be 100% committed to the Word, which is the sword, and righteousness, which is the breastplate. And would you be glorified in every life, 